Well, today is, is Father's Day. And uh, I personally, I want to say thank you to my dad. Thank you for all that he did in, in raising me and loving me. He's, he taught me a lot about hard work and working around the house and chores and, <clears throat> and, and just what it meant to, to be responsible, to be a responsible man and, and look after a family. And so a, a lot of who I am today is, is a product of my dad. So I, I really want to thank him for that. And, and the reality is, I think it's true for all of us, is that our fathers play uh, an critical and irreplaceable role. In fact, even if you didn't have a father, if your father was out of the picture for any reason, uh, that would have had a huge impact on, on who you are and how you're raised. And so fathers, fathers are really, really important. And I, as I look at today, right now, we're, we're in the midst of a, what could be a generational change. Uh, an upheaval that hasn't been seen, I, I would say, since the 1960s in the U.S. when they had all the the, the marches and, and for some riots and, and everything. And so there's a potential here for, for massive change on a societal level. And, and I think that the change, though, that we need, it can't come from legislation. It can't come from the, the government. It can't come from the law. And, and I say that because as New Covenant believers, we know, we know the limitations of the law, but we also know what the law can and can't do. The law can't change a person's heart. The law can't stop problems from happening. It can't stop sin. In fact, all it does is it makes it worse. And, and so what we want to see in terms of that change, I think, really needs to start from home. And, and I say that because that's, if you listen, that's basically what, what all the people are, are pointing to. And, and I say that carefully because I think if you turn on the 24-hour news media, they're not, they're not saying that necessarily because they're too interested in the sensationalism and the, and the sound bites. And so they got everyone yelling and screaming and because that's what draws in the viewers. But if you can kind of get past all the screaming and listen to the people who are having the discussion, the people who are looking at the reality and the facts, they all point to, to something which is the problems at home namely the problems with, with fathers. And, and I don't say that to put more guilt and shame and condemnation on fathers, but to really highlight the critical role, the amount of influence we as dads have. And again, that's, that's not just one political party or one political spectrum's perspective. That's, that's true with people on the right, if you were to listen to people like Jordan Peterson or Thomas Sowell, but also people on the left, people like the former president Barack Obama. And so actually I have a clip for you that you got a little preview for earlier, but we're going to play that clip right now. Uh, here's President Obama, a couple clips kind of sl spliced together on his take on what's happening in, uh, in the Western world. No law or set of laws can prevent every senseless act of violence in this country. When a child opens fire on another child, there is a hole in that child's heart that government can't fill, only community and parents and teachers and clergy can fill that hole. There's no more important ingredient for success, nothing that would be more important for us reducing violence than strong, stable families means we should do more to promote marriage and encourage fatherhood. You know, don't get me wrong, as the son of a single mom who gave everything she had to raise me with the help of my grandparents, you know, I, I turned out okay. 
But, no, no, but, but I think it's, you know, so, so we got single moms out here. They're, they're heroic what they're doing. And we are so proud of them. But at the same time, I wish I'd had a father who was around and involved. The family is that most important foundation. And we are called to recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers and coaches, they're mentors and they're role models. They are examples of success and the men who constantly push us towards success. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing. Too many fathers are MIA. Too many fathers are AWOL. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They've abandoned their responsibilities. They're acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our family have suffered because of it. You and I know this is true everywhere, but nowhere is it more true than in the African-American community. We know that more than half of all black children live in single-parent households. Half, a number that's doubled since we were children. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. They're nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teen parents because the father wasn't in the home. The foundations of our community and our country are weaker because of this. Listen to those numbers again. Five times more likely to live in poverty nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. The stats are undeniable. The, the role that a father will play in a, in a child, a, be it a son or a daughter's life, is critical. And if, if that father isn't there, <clears throat> what happens is <clears throat> people go looking for that father figure. They, they will look for it in gangs or in, in the role models and on TV and, and who may not be the best places. And I, I love how Charles Barkley would put it. He would say, I'm not a role model. Parents are role models and, and pointing us to, to, that, to that generation. And so it's really critical. But the reality is that the lack of fathers is not really new to this generation. It's, it's been around for all generations, I think. In fact, Paul talked about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and he wrote to them and he says to them, essentially, you've got many teachers. You've got many people to teach you and many experts, many people who know all these information and give you information. But he says, but you have few fathers, few people that really understand your heart. And then he goes on to say in, in the same verse in, in chapter 4, verse 15, that, that he instead had adopted that role as a father. And so that's what he saw himself as a father to these, this church, and as, I think to many churches. And so that's what I think we're going to enter into in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, 4, 5, and 6, as we, as we continue on in our study here, we're going to see Paul acting as a father. He, he's going to essentially kind of pull us aside and say and explain to us now 
this is, this is what it means to live based on who you are. See, it's really important to understand that these, there's going to be many commands, many instructions that Paul gives us in chapters 4 to 6 now, but none of these commands, none of these instructions are there to somehow make you into another person. They don't, they don't somehow make you more lovable or more acceptable or, or more okay. That's not the point and the purpose of these commands because the reality is he spent the first three chapters explaining the reality that you are okay. You are a new creation. You are loved. You are accepted. But this is how we live now. And so I'd say it this way, that the commands that Paul's going to give us here are not merely trying to change how we act and how we behave, because the reality is God has made us into someone new already. And so now we get to live based on who we are. And so really what it's going to speak to is, I think, is the character of us and developing and maturing this character. That's really what these three chapters are going to be about. And, and I want to share this quote for, uh, to you from a, an author, a man, man named Stephen Covey. He wrote a very famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and in here, he talks about how, how they, they're, the difference between a character ethic and a behavior or performance ethic, meaning like what drives us, what motivates us? Is it something from within us or something on the external, just behavioral based? And, and he has this great quote. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's a really great quote. He wrote this. He says, I was also deeply immersed in the success literature published in the United States since 1776. I was reading or scanning literally hundreds of books, articles, and essays in fields such as self-improvement, popular psychology, and self-help. At my fingertips was the sum and substance of what a free and democratic people considered to be the keys to successful living. As my study took me back through 200 years of writing about success, I noticed a startling pattern emerging in the content of the literature. Because of our own pain, and because of the similar pain I'd seen in the lives and relationships of many people I'd worked through in the years, I began to feel more and more that much of the success literature of the past 50 years was superficial. It was filled with social image, consciousness, techniques, and quick fixes with social band-aids and aspirin that sometimes addressed acute problems and sometimes even appeared to solve them temporarily, but left the underlying chronic problems untouched to fester and resurface time and again. By the way, he wrote this 31 years ago before social media, so you can only imagine how much bigger this problem is goes on to write and says, in stark contrast, almost all the literature in the first 150 years or so focused on what could be called the character ethic as the foundation of success. Things like integrity, humility, fidelity, which is faithfulness, temperance or self-control, courage, justice, patience, industry, which is essentially hard work, simplicity, modesty, and the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. What we're going to see as we study these three chapters is you're going to see those themes coming up over and over and over again. And and the character development, again, isn't to make you into somebody. It's not to make you good because that's the reality. The, The good news of the new covenant is God's already done all this. God's already made us into someone new, someone beautiful and someone incredible. It's now maturing and growing in that. And so that's what Paul's going to do. Like a good father, he's going to put his arm around us, pull us aside and say, listen, this is who you can be. This is who you are. And and again, the idea isn't 
to become someone new. Let me, let me put it to you this way. God has made you and I into someone new. And this is who we are. This is, this is essentially what he's going to describe us, describing the nature that we now possess. So with that as our, our backdrop, let's, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for the very first time, and we're going to read verse 1. So Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and we're going to stop right there, because that's as far as we're getting this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It's Father's Day, and you are our Father. And that's what's so beautiful, because regardless of who our Father was and the kind of Father we had, or, or maybe we didn't grow up with a Father at all because He chose to leave, or maybe He passed away at an early age. The simple matter of the fact is that ultimately you have always wanted to be the Father to us, and you could only be the Father we need. And so we invite you this morning to be that Father to put your arm around us, to pull us aside, and to father us, to, to teach us to, to be men and women of God, to, to teach us how to live and walk in freedom, the freedom that you have purchased and you have given to us. So thank you, Father, that you can be that to us. I'm trusting you this morning to speak through me in a way that, that I pray will minister to those who are hurting. Those who will they'll find comfort and they'll find hope and strength in the words that you're placed within my heart. I'm looking forward to what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we, as we look at this passage, and, and really I want to look at that one phrase, the prisoner of the Lord. I think it's important for us to remember where Paul is. He's writing this letter. Remember, at this point, he's, he's, the, he's a guest of Rome. And I, I use that term guest very, very liberally because the reality is he's in prison in Rome. And in this prison cell where he's at, he would have been chained to a, a Roman guard, a Roman centurion, 24 hours a day. And, and I don't know if, if that meant that he got bathroom breaks for either himself or the guard. I'm, I don't even want to picture what that would have meant if he didn't. But the reality is he, he had little to no freedom. And people could come and go, but he couldn't go anywhere. So he was under lockdown, but there was no physical distancing except for you can't go beyond, you know, the length of someone's arm. And, and so he was just sitting there and then waiting, waiting for a trial, a trial that likely would only have one or two outcomes, more beatings or his death. And so he was just sitting there with that weighing on his mind. And, and so you would expect, as Paul's writing this letter, to comment on that, to say that I, a, a prisoner of Rome, because that's true and that's the reality of his situation. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says that I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And I think in that simple phrase, that half of a statement there is an incredible statement of really how Paul views life in general. I think it's a, it's a lesson for all of us as how we can face each and every day as we face this world, especially in this world that seemingly is taking away more and more of our freedoms. You see, it would be easy for Paul, I think, to feel like he was a victim. For him to feel like he was being unfairly treated, he was a victim of Rome, victim of his circumstances, and, and therefore to then live as a victim. But the reality is he didn't. 
And so I think what we can do is we can look at the Apostle Paul and learn a lesson from him so that we don't have to live as victims and instead as we can live as victorious ones. We can live in the freedom that God's given to us. So before we go any further though, and we, we understand the freedom that God's given to us, I think it's important for us to define some terms because it's really important that, that I'm clear as to what I mean by those who live as a victim and, and those who've been hurt. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a, a term here. There's a difference between those who have been victimized or living, uh, have experienced victimization versus those who are living under a victim mentality or a victim mindset. So let me explain that. So the victimization or those who've been victimized, that's referring to those who have been mistreated, those who've been abused, those who've been hurt, taken advantage of, have been unfairly or, or mistreated in general. And, and the reality is when you understand it from that perspective, every single person has been victimized in some way. Every single person has experienced victimization. It's the result of living in this world. Now, obviously, some have been more mistreated than others, but we've all experienced it to some degree. And so that might include for some sexual abuse. It might include physical abuse or emotional abuse growing up. It, it might even have happened later on in life. Maybe they were, were assaulted or, or raped. Uh, it might include being bullied. Uh, it might mean that your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife cheated on you or, or rejected you and, and abandoned you in their marriage, left you alone. It might have been a result of your gender or your skin color or, or some other uh, variability or some other thing that you experience discrimination from. The reality is the list of abuses is endless, and it experienced every person, every, every person born. Even if you had the perfect family, you couldn't have escaped it. Again, it just in varying degrees. And so every one of us has been victimized to some degree. But here's where I, I differentiate that from a victim mentality. The victim mentality is the result of that victimization where the person ends up seeing themselves as a victim. Meaning what they're doing is they're adopting this victim mentality and they're allowing their circumstances to define who they are. And therefore defining their whole worldview or point of view, they see everything as a result of that victimization. And the reason for that is because we've got an enemy. And that enemy, what he's done is he's come and he's taken that circumstances, he's taken those events, he's taken the, the painful moments in our lives, and he's, he's interpreted for us. He's taken it and made those events define something about who we are. And again, that's going to be true for every one of us. I mean, think about even the superstar athletes, how often they, they have to put a chip on their shoulder. They want to be that victim. They want to be that underdog because they want to prove something to use it to motivate them. Even in that, we start to see some of that victim mentality. So everyone's been victimized, but I think everyone has to some degree of victim mentality. Again, some have a little and some have a massive victim mentality, but we're all experiencing it. But when I'm speaking this morning, I want you to know I'm speaking as an expert. Because I've been living with a victim for a very long time. Me. I recognize this in my own thinking so many times. When I, when I see difficult circumstances, I often can go to that victim mentality and see it from that way. So I'm speaking from personal experience here. And I want you to know that to those who are struggling with this, I'm not coming down on you hard. 
I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to, to whip you into shape. That's the last thing I want to do for those who struggle with a victim mentality. Because the reality is there's a legitimate reason why you struggle. It's that you've been victimized. You've been hurt. You've been abused. You've been taken advantage of. And not just by the people of this world, but mostly by our enemy, mostly by the flesh. That's the greatest damage. That's the, the greatest victimization is he's taken those events and created in you a belief system that leaves you in bondage. And so that's what I want us to see today, this morning, is how do we walk in that freedom? How, how do we escape the victim mentality? And so we're going to start that by looking at, at some of the characteristics of a victim mentality. And, and I want to start here because hopefully the Holy Spirit can begin to highlight to you and you can begin to recognize that maybe, maybe you've been thinking this way. Maybe not all the time, but maybe from time to time, this kind of thinking has crept into your mind. And, and if we can recognize that, then we can call it for what it is that, oh, that's the victim mentality, but I don't have to live that way anymore. So we're going to look at some statements here about what a victim mentality looks like. And the, the first statement is that it runs on shame. It, it's the belief that I am no good, I'm broken, I'm unfixable and I'm unlovable. You see, every one of us who experienced this victimization, this, again, it could be abuse, it could be rape, or it could be bullied, you know, whatever it is that we're experiencing, you know, we, we look at that and we think, how can I ever, how can I ever come out of this? I mean, it's, it's, it's changed who I am. Because the narrative, again, that, that the flesh has crafted around that abuse, we've allowed it to define who we are. And so I get this thinking, I get this idea that I'm, I'm now fundamentally flawed. This deep, deep shame that, that fuels the victim mentality, that I'm now broken. Because of that abuse, because of that rejection, I'm unlovable. I'm, I'm, I'm unfixable. There's no coming back from me. And, and in fact, it's so bad that when I'm struggling with this deep shame because of all the, the victimization that I've experienced, when love does come my way, when, when love comes from other people, when love even comes from God, I can't trust it. And so when I experience that love from, from a friend or a spouse or, or a family member or, or from God himself, it's so contrary to what's natural to me. So I take that love and I... I just kind of put it over here. And I say, well, that's, that's good for other people, but not for me. Because it doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit my story. It doesn't fit who I see myself as I am. Because my view has been so tainted by shame. Or maybe, maybe you trusted someone's love. And, and in that trusting that love, that's where the betrayal and the rejection came from. And it hurts so much deeper because of that trust. And so now I, I can't trust that love because I don't want to expose myself to that hurt again. It'd be too vulnerable. So again, I'm, I'm just going to put it over here. That, that love can't work for me. And so this deep shame takes root in our lives. It, takes, it, it shapes our worldview and it changes how I see myself. So again, this now fuels the victim, victim mentality. And so here's, here's the first characteristic then of a victim mentality is that I am powerless to affect or bring change into my life. Basically, I, I get this idea that I'm, I'm, I'm out of control. 
that I just, I can't do it. I can't, I can't escape from this. I can't, I can't overcome this problem here. You see, there, there have been many studies done by psychologists and sociologists on this victim mentality and, and comparing those who, who struggle with it and those who don't, trying to understand why. Why do people struggle and why don't people struggle with it? And, and every, every study basically comes back to this one simple concept, is that those who struggle with it they ultimately believe that they're controlled by external forces, forces that are greater than themselves. And, and so they begin, they begin to have a fatalistic approach. It's, it's the government. It's, it's, it's my boss. It's, it's my coworkers. It's, it's my friends. It's my kids. It's my spouse. It's, it's because of everyone else. I'm out of control and therefore I can't do it. I'm powerless to change my life. Everyone else needs to change. And so they become very fatalistic in that sense that I, 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 don't, I don't have a say in this. Whereas those who, who don't tend to struggle as much with the victim mentality, they often have the belief that, that they have the control within themselves, that they ultimately determine their own, their own fate. And again, so where you believe control is, whether it be external, whether it be internal, they say that ultimately determines whether or not you're going to walk in this freedom, even more so than the kind of abuse, the kind of victimization that you've experienced. So it, again, it, there have been people who've had horrendous, horrific abuses, rape and, and poverty and, and, and all kinds of you know, loss of a parent, and yet they've been able to find freedom. Because again, it's not based on the degree of victimization as much as where do you believe control resides. So let me give you this illustration. It, it really comes down to, do you believe yourself as a passenger or a driver? So when a passenger gets in the car, they really have no say on where the car goes. I mean, they can speak and they can offer their opinion, but ultimately they're along for the ride. They're a passenger. And whoever is driving, and be it the government or, or their spouse or their kids or their health or whatever, uh, that's who's going to determine where they are. But, it, but those who walk in freedom, they see themselves as drivers. And so, yeah, the road conditions and circumstances might change things, but ultimately they see themselves as having the power to find the freedom they want. So that's the first one. The next characteristic is in believing that there are passengers out of control is ultimately that since I'm not in control, then I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm not responsible. It's not my fault that I am this way. It's because of everything I've experienced. It's because of what's going on, my circumstance, or it's because of my past. I can't overcome this problem. And so because I don't have control, ultimately, I need other people to save me. I need my parents or I need my spouse. I need, I need the, the, this program. I need the government. I need, I need someone else to rescue me. And so basically, they, they look at life with these phrases, if only someone would fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. If, if only someone would be fill in the blank, then I wouldn't struggle with this addiction. If only someone would fill in the blank, I wouldn't be overwhelmed. I wouldn't be frustrated. If only somebody would fill in the blank, I wouldn't be bitter or angry. And so they, they see life that way. 
And, and the reality is that kind of thinking, we can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? When they ate from the no-no tree, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, their eyes were open and they, they realized they were naked and so they hid from one another. And then God shows up on the scene. Now they're hiding from God. God says, Adam, what happened? What went wrong? And Adam, what does he do? That woman, God, that you gave me. His first instinct was to blame Eve, blame God. It's not my fault. I, I didn't have a say in it. It's someone else's fault and all that. And again, please understand, you and I, we don't choose to be victimized. We don't choose the abuse, and it was a very real abuse that you experienced. We don't choose that. But we do get to choose what we believe as a result of it. We do get to choose who we will listen to, who we will let craft the story, the narrative of who we are, be it the flesh or be it God. And the one who's struggling with the victim mentality is allowing the enemy to craft that narrative. And thereby, we're choosing to stay in that prison. A prison that's got no doors to it. A prison that has no power on us. A prison of our own choosing at this point. And I know that that's hard to hear. And please, I'm not here to beat anyone, anyone that, that experiences this victim mentality. I speak from personal experience. But we need to understand that, that in order for us to walk in freedom, it starts with a choice that we're going to make. We're going to see that more as we go on. But there's, there's more that we see in this victim mentality. So the next statement here is this idea that, that life's not fair. Because of all the abuse of what I've gone through, I shouldn't have to struggle. I shouldn't have this pain. I shouldn't have this difficulty. I, I didn't ask for it. And you're right. You didn't. It's absolutely not fair. It's absolutely wrong and evil and sinful that you were abused. I'm not denying that. And, and, and in fact, maybe, maybe today, maybe right now, and sadly, if this is the case, but maybe today right now will be the first time you'll hear someone say, you're right to feel what you felt. That hurt, that abuse was wrong. You didn't deserve it. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. But, but the problem is, if you, if you let that define who you are, what it can lead to is now a lot of self-pity, a lot of despair. And when you have that self-pity, you have that despair, you feel almost empowered to stay in that pit and that misery. But that misery is full of pain and sorrow. And, and so what we end up doing is we, we got to medicate that pain. And we, we make all kinds of now poor choices. Again, choices that we're now making. Yes, it may have Result or, or been a result or, or initiated from the abuse that we experienced, but now we're making these choices. Choices to medicate through drugs and alcohol or, or sex or pornography or anger or withdrawal or isolation. And we're choosing now, out of this hurt, to stay in this, this, this difficult spot. And again, as a counselor who's, who's dealt with many people who struggle with life's problems, I see this victim mentality over and over again. A victim mentality that keeps people in their bondage. Where they're, they're almost not even willing to change. That, that the pit and the prison that they've created is almost too comfortable for them. And so the last statement we got here is now what ends up happening is, 
is we realize how difficult this is and how hard it is and, and being out of control and I'm powerless to affect change. And so I, I become, uh, it's hopeless. And so there's no point in me fighting. And so basically they just kind of give up and they just stay there. In fact, what happens sometimes is, is I see some people, they almost choose to fight to stay as a victim harder than it would be to walk in freedom. And, and there's, again, a bunch of reasons. Maybe because they're, they're holding on to that victim mentality. They're holding on to that, that victim title, that label, because no one's acknowledged their pain. Maybe that's what we need to do right now in this, this world of upheaval. We just need to acknowledge and that people are hurting, and there's reasons for that hurt. There's, there's justifiable atrocities and, and abuse and injustices that have happened. And we could acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that. And I don't want to rush, rush past that acknowledgement, but just acknowledging it isn't enough. It's not enough. We saw that years ago in Canada here when we had the, the Truth and Reconciliation. We had a, a royal commission for, for multiple years leading to a giant apology in the, in the House of Commons led by the, the Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister Harper. And we acknowledged it. We, we took ownership of it, but it wasn't enough because just acknowledging it isn't enough. There needs to be change. There needs to be walking out of it. And I'm, I'm not trying to blame the victim. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I want you to see if you're struggling with this victim mentality, there's hope. There's hope for you that you can walk out of that victimhood regardless of anyone else, regardless of even those who hurt you recognized it or not. You don't have to stay there. Because the answer to this victim mentality is resilience. Or, or another word for that, the biblical word we might even say is perseverance. See, perseverance or resilience isn't, isn't freedom from the trial. It's not that suddenly everything gets easy for us and, and we're, we're just comforted and soothed and we don't have any more problems moving forward. That's not the answer. The answer is resilience or perseverance. And perseverance is the ability to stand up under the trial. It's not the absence of that conflict. It's the, the opportunity or the ability to stand up to the trial. And that doesn't mean you don't get, ever get knocked down. It doesn't mean you don't get punched in the face and you don't get kicked in the gut or in the groin. It means that every time you do, you get back up and you fight again. I can, I can do this all day, as Cap American used to, used to say. And that's resilience. That's the ability to keep on fighting. And for some people... You know, I think some people are just born with it. They're just naturally gifted with the res resolute or resilient spirit, resilient will. Think about it this way. Some people are gifted with a body where it really doesn't matter what they eat and doesn't really matter if they exercise a lot. They're just going to be lean and cut and, and have a really trim body. Robin, Matt. And, and then there's others, myself, I won't name any other names because I don't want to hurt Greg's feelings. But, but <clears throat> there are others who, you know, we gotta, we got to work hard to, to try to not, you know, be not out of shape, but more of a rounded shape, I'll say. Right? So there's some people who are just naturally gifted. It's easy for them. 
There are some people where their minds, it's really easy for them to understand complex things like math and sciences. And then there's others who have to study really, really hard to understand basic math because they're just not gifted naturally with a, with a, a really superstar mind. And then there's other people who are gifted emotionally and meaning that they, they have a natural ability to connect with other people emotionally, a compassion and understanding. And others, they got to work at it. They got to develop that. Well, basically, a resilience or, or perseverance is just a strong chooser. It's a, it's a healthy will that, that says I'm not going to be easily swayed. And, and the reality is there are some people who are naturally born with a strong chooser. And if that's you, thank God for it. But please understand, you didn't do anything to make that happen. That was something God gave you. It's a gift. and You didn't earn that gift. And so it's really important that those who have a resilient will don't look down on those who don't. Because again, you didn't, you didn't do anything to, to deserve it. You, were, you, you didn't do anything to be born with it. It just happened that way. Well, what about the rest of us then? What about those who weren't born with a res, res, resilient will? How, how do, what do we do with all that? Well, the good news is, while you may not have been born with one, you can develop one. You see, Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 5 and in, um, in verses 3 to 5. He, he says this, and, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations will bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. You see, the, the beauty of this is that <clears throat> this, this spirit here that we have, this resolution, this perseverance, it's brought about. These, these trials and these tribulations that we experience can help develop that within us. You see, I think too often we've, we've misunderstood what God's doing in our struggles, that he's using this to mature, to, to develop this, this ability to have a healthy, resolute will. Let, let me give you the illustration of the butterfly. I, love, I think God created the, the butterfly really for the new covenant to illustrate what God had done there. Think about it. This, this, this butterfly doesn't start off as a butterfly. It starts off as a caterpillar. It's born as one. Just like you and I, we don't, we don't come on planet Earth as a saint. We're born a sinner. But this caterpillar, eventually it, it weaves a cocoon around itself. Within that cocoon, that caterpillar dies and decomposes. It's gone. There's a metamorphosis, a change where it becomes a brand new creation, something different. Not just a caterpillar with wings, but now a butterfly. And that's a beautiful picture of the new covenant, right? We start off as a sinner when we're born here on planet Earth, and then we come to faith in Christ. And in that moment, we're placed in Jesus Christ and we're crucified. The sinner is gone. The old creation leaves the building. He's buried in that cocoon, so to speak. And we decompose and there's a metamorphosis and we're reconstituted as a brand new creation. Not a sinner saved by, by grace, but now a saint, a righteous one, a holy one, a loved being, someone who has immense, immeasurable worth, someone that's pure and holy. That's who we are as this butterfly. But you see, this butterfly has got to get out of the cocoon now. And the reality is, is, is it's a battle. It's a fight to get out of that cocoon. In fact, it's so difficult, it will exhaust the butterfly to get out of the cocoon. 
But there's reason for that. You see, in the battle, in the fight to break out of that cocoon, that what's happening is the butterfly is developing the muscles that it's going to need in order to fly. And if you and I came along and seeing the battle, seeing the fights, said, let me help you. And we were to cut open the cocoon and open it up to make it easier for that butterfly, it would fall to the ground. And it wouldn't have the strength to fly anymore. And so that battle was necessary. That battle was required to build up the strength it was going to need to live. And that's what God's using these trials, these difficulties that all of us are facing to build up within us a resolute spirit, a a, a resilient mindset so that we would be able to face the challenges, each and every challenge that we face day in, day out. That's the faith, that's the strength that we're going to need for the journey ahead of us. So let that illustration sink in. Think about that. I said earlier now that, that psychologists and sociologists, they, they said that the, the major determining factor about those who struggle with the victim mentality or those who, who live with this resilient mindset comes down to control. And where do you think control is? And, and those who struggle with the victim mentality believe control is beyond them, external. They're fatalistic. They're passengers. Whereas those who had that resilient mindset, they believed they had it within themselves and they had that control within themselves. Ultimately, I think those were people who were born with a more, uh, a stronger will, a stronger chooser. See, the, the world would say, well, then the answer is simple. Take back control. Realize you have the strength within yourself. You can do it. Buck up. Work harder. It's on you. And if that were the answer, we would be victim blaming. But the answer doesn't come from within you. I call that the gospel of Oprah. Because think about it. We've had, we've had 20, 30, according to Stephen Covey, 80 plus years of basically that's it. Of just spinning your wheels. Just you can do it over and over again. In fact, that's really been the answer going back to the garden. See, the answer can't come from us. Jesus says, apart from him, you and I can do nothing. And that includes having a resilient mindset. That includes walking in victory. That includes overcoming this victimhood. It can't come from us. It's got to come from God. And that's where we can learn this lesson from the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to put this verse up here. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He, he, he has this great phrase, for the lesson for us. He says this, I got this such confidence Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. See that confidence? That's a resilient, resolute, persevering mindset. But he says, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. The answer's not from me. The answer's not in me. I don't have what it takes. But our adequacy is from God, who has also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the trying hard, not of rules and principles, but of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The letter kills, the law kills, but the Spirit, the life of Jesus in us, gives life. See, Paul understood that his power comes from God who lives within him, a God who empowers him to face every child, every challenge, which is why he could say, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, not a prisoner of Rome. Because he's recognizing in that moment, he's recognizing where his strength and where his power is coming from. 
It's coming from Jesus. And therefore, I can face this challenge. I can face my imprisonment because Jesus is in me. Jesus is up to something. So let's look at some traits that I think make up a resilient mindset. Here's the first one. Is we need to recognize that we do not operate in a, in a, in a vacuum, that we have an enemy and he is a liar. And I said we don't operate in a vacuum, meaning that every day, every moment, you have a liar who's whispering in your ear. And he's opposed to God, and therefore he's opposed to you. And so he's lying to you. He's, he's deceiving you. He's, he's trying to tell you something about who you are, but it does not line up with who God is or who God's made you. And it doesn't stop, not for a moment. And that, that chief weapon that he has for you is those whispers in your mind just lying to us over and over and over again. Listen to how Jesus described it. In John chapter 8, 44, he says he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's going to lie about you. You're not good enough. You're too weak. You're too broken. You're too flawed. You're too unlovable. That maybe, maybe if you did better, then maybe if you're a bit more resilient, maybe if you tried hard, then possibly you'd be okay. But, but you're not good enough, and you failed way too many times. That that I think I think you're beyond hope. That that God's really He's disappointed in you. I mean, He He loves you because He loves everyone. He loves the world, but but you particularly. Either he's disappointed in, or at best, he's indifferent towards you. So you're really all alone. And, and by the way, it's not just God who thinks that about you. <laughs> Everyone else knows too. And if they don't, they'll find out soon enough. And so what you're up against in your past, it's too big. It's too hopeless. It's too hard. And all of them are lies. All of them are lies trying to keep you in bondage. But if you just only try to ignore them, it won't be enough. Because it'll just keep coming. It'll just keep coming. It's just keep coming. It's not enough to ignore the lies. What we need to do is replace it with the truth. And so here's the truth. The next trait is this, that God is good. Oh, man, that, that, is, that is such a loaded, powerful statement. God is good. He's always good. Everything he does is good. And that especially applies to you and me. Meaning he's not just good in general. He's good to you. He's good to me all the time. Think about, think about some famous verses. Like Romans, or, or sorry, Psalm 107, verses 8 to 9. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing of their soul. He fills their hunger. He fills their soul with goodness. It's the goodness of God. Or in Psalm 27, verse 13, this is the mighty warrior David speaking. And I say that because David was someone I would say was born with a resolute will. I mean, the guy, he faced down bears and lions. I mean, that, I think there was part of it that was born there, but it needed to be developed and bred. 
and he developed it because listen to what he says in verse 13 of Psalm 27. I would have lost heart. I would have given up. I would have rolled over and played dead unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Land of the living. Because if I didn't know God was good and that I wouldn't see his goodness, I'd given up. Because I knew God was good. I knew that he was good to me and I'd see it. I wasn't going to give up. I was not going to stop until I saw that goodness of God. That's what was powering that resolute will. Because since God is good, he cannot lie. He cannot do evil. He cannot cheat. It's impossible. He's good to you and I all the time. But not only is he good, but here's the next statement. He's in control. See, God is in control, and he's always for you and me. He's always working for our best. And because of that, he can redeem anything. Oh, praise the Lord. Think about it. To me, the, the, the worst, greatest and travesty and justice that the world has ever seen was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God was able to redeem that. That was the, the moment of salvation. If he can redeem something so horrific, as, so unjust as that, he can redeem anything in your life. And that's the basis of Romans 8, 28 and 29. That God uses all things for our good. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the really bad, ugly stuff. He's going to redeem it for our good, that we would know him, walk with him, experience him. Or Jeremiah 29, 11, a famous passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, but for a future and a hope. That you be well and whole. That's what he's saying to us. And here's the last last characteristic I'd say is this is Jesus is enough. Jesus in me is enough. That his strength, his power, his hope, his steadfastness, his life being available, not just for us, but to us and in us. And it's here right now is everything I need for the situation. That I don't have to go and do something to, to get it, to, to, to acquire it. It's in me right now. All I need to do is step out in faith. And so that's, I think, what Paul understood. So let, let's look at another famous passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Listen to what Paul says. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Notice he said, I learned it. Yeah, I think he was born with a resolute will, but he learned it. It was developed. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I had. I know how to get along with humble means, difficulties and trials and very little, living in poverty. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I've learned, there's that word again, I developed it, I've, I've been trained, I've matured, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Well, what was the secret? What was the secret? I can do all things through him who, th who strengthens me. And whatever challenge I'm facing, Jesus in me, him empowering me, is enough. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's just going to be, you know, a walk in the park. But no matter how many times I get knocked down and kicked from this world or, or from circumstances, Christ in me is enough. 
And that's the key. It's Jesus in me. He is my strength and my power. And so Paul, he, it wasn't about him and his own strength. When we look to the, where's the control coming from? It's coming from Christ within us. Look to Jesus. And he overcomes that, re, that victim mentality, that victim mindset. Before I close, let me, let me just restate some key things here. Because I, I really hope that you don't feel beat up today. Please, please, that's not my goal. My hope is that you feel encouraged and hopeful. That, that while I believe that this message applies to every one of us, that we all struggle with this victim mentality to some degree, ultimately this message is mainly for those who struggle with it a lot. And, and those who are most hurting, those who need this message the most, also need our care, our compassion, our understanding, and our patience the most. And so if you're struggling with it, I want you to know it's okay to struggle. It's, it's okay to, that this is a fight for you. Let us come alongside you and encourage you so that together we can walk in freedom. Walk out of the prison cell of your victimhood. You don't have to stay there. And, and if you hear any condemnation from this, don't listen to it. Know that's coming from the enemy. Know that it's going to come. He's a liar and he's a cheat. And we don't have to listen to him anymore. You're right where you're supposed to be. God's in charge. You're right where you're supposed to be. And every day, he's maturing you. Every day, you're walking in greater freedom. You're right where you need to be. You're loved. Even if you continue to live as a victim, you're still loved. And for those of you who, who don't need this message as much, who are walking in this freedom, but you see those who are struggling, offer them compassion. And if you don't have that compassion, then pray that the Lord will give you some because you need it. Because it's important that we love one another. So offer them compassion, offer them love, offer them patience, because remember, God's still working in us. And finally, remember this. We have an enemy and he's a liar. Our God is good and he's good for you. He's in control and he can redeem anything. And Jesus in you and me Jesus in you is enough. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are and the strength and the power that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ, that we don't have to remain as victims, that you can heal us. You can overcome that pain and that sorrow. And in that healing, it invites us to live differently, to live in a way that we can walk out of the prison cell that the victim mentality has been and live with strength and power from you inside of us. So rather than navel-gazing and looking at our pain, may we recognize that you're there in us and that you've overcome this world and you've overcome the lies of the enemy and we can walk in freedom. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great day, everyone. And remember your love.